Hola amigos, hello my friends, this is Billy Shane, your bass player, and you're listening to me right here on Focus on Metal. Metalhead Scott here. And Richie. Yes, Richie, for the first time in 2024. Uh, good to have you back in the studio. Of course, the kind of the driving reason's a little bit of a downer, but uh, yeah, it's great to have you back. Yeah, glad to be back. Yeah. More discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be uh, a lot of discussion kind of year. <laughs> um, yeah, I've got a couple of interviews maybe in the in the can. Yeah, so I mean, we'll uh, see. We'll see what comes up, but yeah. Yep. yeah. We're not stopping. Nope. No, it's uh, it's rolling along, but uh, yeah, it's good to have you back down here, and uh, just got we got lots of stuff in store for you this week. Uh, got a little discussion, like Richie said, and then uh, later on, I, I will be uh, rolling an interview with uh, Darren Pouchowitz. Some of you may know him as the host of the DLR Cast, but I have him on the show to talk about the DLR book, a book all about David Lee Roth, the really good book. Gives you some interesting opinions on Diamond Dave, but uh, that's for later on in the show. But uh, right now, um, I think we have to talk about a uh, little death in the family. Deaths. Um, yeah. Uh, I know you've all these anniversaries of deaths that have come up, like the day I'm talking to you, I think Jeff Beck's been dead a year. Yep. And then, of course, Neil Neil's de- anniversary of his death, I think, was the, the 6th or the 7th. Yeah, January. It's, it's yeah, it's yeah. And then you get, you know, the, you, you, social media. You find out first of all that um, that Tony Clarkin from Magnum had died. Yeah, uh, he was seventy-seven years of age, and just towards the end of the year, uh, they cancelled the UK tour, mm. uh, and the reason given was Tony had some sort of spinal condition. Yeah, um, that would affect his playing. Uh huh. Okay. Because you know all about spinal conditions, holding a guitar, <sighs> playing a two-hour set. Yeah, especially if you're holding a Les Paul, that damn thing gets really heavy. Yeah. Or a bass. Yeah. And um, so you, all the Magnum fans, of course, were bummed about that. Yeah. And um, they're probably not a band that is, they're not big over here because they're, they're, they're really not toured here, right? No, to be honest, they're not. They, I mean, I you know I've heard of them and stuff. But they uh, they definitely weren't a band that got big here, no. Yeah, but they have a pretty big loyal following in UK yeah. and Europe. And um, their new record is out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just before the album comes out, you find out that Tony passed away. And he was the, the songwriter. Yeah. He wrote everything. It, I'd say 98% of their material was solely written by him. Okay. Um, music and lyrics. Yeah. Um, the one time they, that I believe they compromised that I can remember was when they did a Good Night LA record with Keith Olsen uh, uh-huh. in 91. Uh, they were trying to break the US market and yeah. the label said, right, we're going to put <laughs> Russ Ballard and Jim Valance yeah. with you. And they came out with, a, with what I still think was a really strong record. And the funny thing about that was... That, they wanted him to break the U.S. market, release the record, and then never bothered releasing it in the States anyway. <laughs> um, and then they broke up a couple of years after that. But 
I think their big record in England, I think, was Wings of Heaven that came out in 88. They were on top of the Pops. They were an arena band then. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, it was Tony and there was the guitar player and the songwriter and, and Bob Catley were the constants yeah. in the band. And they broke up for a while in the 90s and then they came back together and they've been very consistent releasing new material. And I think their last three or four records were really strong. And they're, it was like every two years you had a Magnum album. Like yeah. the previous Magnum record was... January 2021, I think. Yeah, I would remember. I'd see the release stuff for it and be like, wow, these guys keep consistently putting something out. Yeah, And here they were getting up there near 80 years of age and they were still touring, still bringing out new music. Um, What always amazed me about Tony, and you you can allude to this, um, how many songs are in a person? Oh, I know. If you're the guy writing all the songs, Uh eventually the well has to dry up. But with Tony, it was... Yep, new record every two years. All songs written and yeah. solely written by him. So he had you amazing. Know, one of those magical guitars that just seems to have a million songs in it. You know, yeah, where does the motivation come from for someone that age? Especially with the way the music industry has changed over the years. Like, there's no money in records anymore. No, but you know what I think it is. Is I think that Tony probably settled on the fact that he was going to write songs for himself. So, like, we're not a, you know, I, I wrote songs that became hits, and people seem to like what I do. I'm not going to do a formula. I'm not going to write to that kind of regimen. I'm just going to write stuff that pops into my head, stuff that I feel, and if people like it, great. I, I think that's what he did. Yeah, and that's how he was able to do that. He didn't, he didn't have to go, oh, wait a minute. I have to write the anthem, and I have to write the ballad, and I have, you know what I mean? I think he just did what he, what his, you know, his inner feelings told him to do probably. Mm. And he was never one of these guitarists that was flashy. Yeah. He never felt the need. Oh, I need to show off here. He always played to the song. Uh huh. Um, and they were a very quintessential British band. They had the album artwork. Uh, I think Rodney Matthews did a lot of the album artwork, very, you know, Lord of the Rings kind of okay. um, yeah. style of, of artwork over the years. Yeah. Um, they were just, they were just one of these bands that, you know, they were like an old pair of slippers. Uh-huh. You know, you put them on and they're just comfortable and they yeah. were always there. And they had that, I remember they used to have the distinctive logo font too. So you, you could almost see it across a record store. Yeah. You'd see that big magnum. You'd be like, oh, okay, yeah. You yeah. Always, I would always remember their logo. Yeah, so, of course, you know, now, now this is their last record. Yeah. Like they, I, I could, I, I'm really confident in saying that. Magnum are finished, and I hate I hate saying it, but uh-huh. I can't see them bringing in someone to replace Tony. No, no, because not he's, with his the, yeah. his position in yes, there. Yes, yeah. he, he is such a he is such a pivotal role in that band, right. and and I don't think Bob Catley would actually want to do that anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, now, will they play maybe a tribute show or something for him? Because probably I yeah. can see that. Yeah. But for all intents and purposes, now the band is over. Right. And I hope the new record does well. Um, I know there's a push at the moment to try and get, you know, as some tribute to him to try and get him as high up the charts as they can. Or even to get the band to chart. Mm -hmm. Because a band like that is a very niche following. Yeah. Um, But I think, you know, there's a lot of people out there that, 
you know, um, they have fond memories of the band. Mm-hmm. Um, they yeah. might they might have jumped on and off the tracks over the years and yeah. said, right, I only like this period of the band. I don't like that. But you know, a lot of people like they were fans of the band, and it's like, oh fuck, they have a new album coming out. This is going to be it. Like you know, yeah, let's let's listen to see what he's doing now and. And you know, hopefully it goes over well. All the reviews I've heard are uh, are pretty stellar. Mm. Um, the last album was I thought was really good, but some fans didn't like it. You see, this is what you were saying about to- with about Tony. These are the songs I have now. Yeah, this is the best I have now. Yeah, like nobody else is going to come in and change it. Yeah. So if you don't like it, maybe the next record will, will do it for right. you. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, just. Sad, sad, but these musicians dying now, they're up there. You know, we're up there. We're yeah. getting there, you know. Yeah, it's, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> <laughs> like, we'll talk about the, the next musician that died, um, James Kotak. Yeah. Uh, and we'll get into James a bit more now in, in a few minutes, our, our personal interactions with him. Um, because I'd never interviewed Tony Clark and never interviewed right. anybody in Magnum. Yeah. Um, just knew, just a big. I was a fan of the band, mm-hmm. um, but with James dying, uh, I know he'd had issues. He, he's he's had issues for years. It's yeah. public knowledge. Yeah, yeah. And he's and he's tried to try to deal with those. It was interesting because you'd actually hear from him quite a bit, and he was pretty active. And I didn't even realize it until because probably because the holidays going on and stuff. But then when he passed i was thinking i really i haven't heard anything from him in weeks which was really unusual he'd been in rehab and it was like uh, like wow like just silence it came out uh i think keith st john was i think was on eddie trunk hmm. keith was of course the, the singer yep. in kingdom combo replacing lenny uh i think he said he'd been in a in rehab for weeks uh just before he died hmm. So probably one of the things in rehab is probably no that, cell phones, yeah that would explain that no yeah. social media yeah yeah uh, but it was but it was yeah it was yeah really just kind of shitty news and yeah we've that's he was probably one of the guys we had on we had him on five times really five times yeah wow and uh, and and the funny thing is is that his second appearance was actually the first time you talked with him. Because you you talked with him in 2014 as part of the Little Mountain Project. But his episode, we didn't air until 2016. So we had him on in 2015 for something on Kingdom Come. Then we had him off a Little Mountain. Then we did the two-episode career retrospective with him. Mm. And then we had him on again for the, uh, Kingdom, the Come. Kingdom Come reunion. Yeah. All right. So... Yeah, so we've had him on five times. Yeah, I'm going to go into a little bit more detail on some of these because uh, I know he was out there on social media with his political views mm-hmm. and, and what have you. And I'm not really on Twitter. Yeah. So whatever he was posting, the only time I'd actually see it is if someone like Blabbermouth picked it up. And mm-hmm. of course, that Blabbermouth fucking loved that shit. Yeah, actually, a lot of the stuff he put on Twitter, believe it or not, well, he was very much into animal adoption and stuff. A lot of stuff he put on was 
Hey, this cat's available. Hey, this dog's available. Yeah, but Blabbermouth's not going to call. Of course, no. That's why I'm saying that's. Yeah. But that's a lot of what he put on there. That's he was really passionate about that. Yeah. yeah. So um, anytime I'd post something about Kotak on the Facebook page, yeah, some people would, oh, you're fucking arsehole, blah, and whatever. And I would always say, well, I've never had. He's always tra- treated us really yeah. good. So he, here's we'll, we'll we'll go through all this. Because I, I, I want to actually go through some of the, your interactions with him because I don't think we've really spoken in detail about a lot of them before. Um, so the fir- how I first got him on the show was I sent him a message, just the Little Mountain Sound yeah. one. So, of course, he played on... Uh, um, what happened to you in Little Mountain? Kingdom Come, the debut with Bob Rock. Yep. Um, so I hit him up through LinkedIn. And he got back to me saying he'd love to come on. I, I gave, him, I gave yep. him the whole spiel about, here's what we're doing. We're trying to get a drummer on and a guitarist and a singer. And yep. he ended up being the drummer. And I arranged the interview and we had a great chat with him for about probably 45, 50 minutes. Yep. And he was, you know, he was delighted to start talking about all those days because that was his big break. Yeah, well, and and, the, and that he, he told a lot, of, a lot of stories. He told a lot about the sneaking in to do the scorpion sessions and yeah. stuff like that and he was really open and and yeah just put a lot of time in mm. so uh after that mm. interview happened uh he messaged me and he said richie i had a great time talking to you uh what's your address and i i said oh okay i sent him my address yeah. you know and about about a week later this big box arrives in my house yeah from Kotec and uh, I'm like what the fuck is this right so I opened it up uh, I think there was two signed drum heads yeah there was probably three or four Scorpions t-shirts yeah there was signed postcards there was posters um, just sent to me yeah uh, as for no reason yeah and he is the only musician has ever done that in the 11 years I'm doing the show. Yeah, I know. I mean, Tracy sent me a whole bunch of craps one time. Oh, Tracy G did. Yeah. Yeah, He sent us some stuff as well. But yeah, James is, yeah, the same. I mean, I've got a couple of signed drum heads up there. I've got sticks. Yeah. yeah, Oh, he sent me sticks too. Two pairs of signed drum sticks. Um, So we did the interview and every so often I'd text him, you know, because I had his number now. I'd say happy birthday. And I'd say, thanks, Richie. Hope everything's well with the family. Yeah. And then... Uh, the Return to Forever tour came to Boston. Yep. The Scorpions tour. Yep. And so I hit up James and I said, planning on going to the show, any chance I get to meet you? Yeah. Because I'd never met him. I'd just right. text him yeah. and, and did the interview. I said, Richie, hit me up the day before the show. Do not buy a ticket. Yeah. I'll Don't buy a ticket. Um, just, I'll look after you. And um, so... He said, right, just remind me the morning of the show. Just send me a text and I'll get back to you. So show comes around and that morning he texts me back and he says, Richie, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm only able to get you five tickets and five backstage passes. <laughs> right? All yeah. access passes. Right? Oh, yeah. they were, I remember that this was like beyond all access because you remember the first security point we went to, the woman had no idea what the hell to do with those passes. We had to go to another, and they were like, and even that one, and that person had to call somebody else over. Yeah, that would basically that just said, just let them do whatever the hell they want. 
Yeah. <laughs> but of like, course, oh. <laughs> the problem we had, because it was that day, who are we going to get to go with us? Yeah. So it ended up, we had five backstage passes and five tickets. And yeah. it, was, it was only me and you at the yeah. show. Yeah. Um, and it was their first date in the States for that Return to Forever tour, too. Yeah. Yeah. And Queensryche were supporting them. Yeah. So we get there. Right. This is where I piss him off. So we, we get there. And um, I said, right, let's go backstage. And, of course, you said to me, let's watch Queensryche for a while. Uh-huh. Okay. So then we watched, like, a couple of songs of Queensryche. And we end up going backstage. And Rudolf Schenker ran past me. Oh, yeah. He almost ran us over. Right. No, I just ran us over. <laughs> And so there's like a, a, obviously there's a communal area right yeah. behind the stage. Yeah. And we saw James. So James didn't know what I looked like. And I went up, said, James, I'm Richie, focus on metal. Ah, oh, Richie, great to see you. Why weren't you back here 10 minutes ago? You would have got, you would have got to meet the band. Yeah. And I just remember turning around looking at you <laughs> and I wanted to fucking kill you because <laughs> you wanted to watch a bit of Queensryche. Huh? <laughs> but uh, so he brought us back to the dressing room. Yeah. And I, Pavel was Pavel there, was the, with him, the yeah. bass player, yeah. and couldn't have been nicer. Um, oh, yeah. Was going through all his stuff here. Yeah. Take this. Ha, yeah. well, I think I've drumsticks somewhere here. Take that. Yeah. Great to see you. Um, and then it, he said, "Oh, there's no beer back here." Yeah, he was going to go raid Rudolph's right, he was beer. Gonna raid, I was like, "No, yeah, no, don't no, touch no, Rudolph's okay, beer." <laughs> no, it's okay, James. We don't want to be. Dr- yeah. We don't, don't want to drink, you know, because yeah. we 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 didn't know whether he was on the dry or not. Well, yeah, but it was also they just had loaded up. They were loading the buses up too. Yeah, so, so it was like, yeah, I just leave we did, it. We're, we're here. We don't. Yeah. You, you've done enough. Yeah. I even said to him, James, we're okay. We're fine. Yeah. So we shot the shit with James, and then we went to get to get our seats. Mm-hmm. And I think we're right in the middle, about ten rows back from the front. Nobody else but, in the row. No, yeah, th- yeah, <laughs> and there was empty seats, of course, yeah. next to us because that was the comp. That was we, the comp seats for for both bands. Right. So yeah. we we went to the show. The show was great. Um, I remember sending James a, a text saying, thanks very much. We had a great time. And he, he, I was like, I, I'm sorry, I could only get you five tickets. Like, <laughs> Fucking hell, five. Um, and then it went on a while after that. Of course, he got kicked out of the Scorpions. And, and then he got Kingdom Come back together. Yeah. And he hit me up. And he asked me, he said, Richie, you know, I hope you're doing well and the family's doing well. I know I haven't spoken to you in a while. Um, I don't know whether you've heard Kingdom Come are back together. Uh, is there any chance you, I can do an interview with you to yeah. help promote the band? Yeah. And of course, I was, of course. Yeah. I'd love to talk to yeah. you again. No, I'd love to help you promote the, the reunion. Yeah. Um, so we got him back on the show, spoke about the reunion. Um, I actually forgot about the career chat. Yeah. So we, yeah, I did that a career chat. That. Yeah, did, I did a career chat for two hours with him before that, and he yeah. was fantastic. Yeah. Um, so the Kingdom Come thing happened, and then they came to play in the Tupelo in uh, Music Hall in yeah. uh, New Hampshire. Yeah, but he also when you remember when he when he did the Kingdom Come, he had first he, he actually set it up to have us talk to uh, Danny and Rick. Yes. Before we even talked to him. Yes, he did. So he let us basically get a whole different opinion and everything yeah. else set that up with yeah. those guys mm-hmm. first which they didn't tend to like to talk anyways but he got them to come on that's right and then we had him on second so that's yeah right. we actually did two shows to promote that yeah and um because we 
there's all different perspectives to all of yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And I'm always curious to know what, what was Rick been doing yeah. and what, is, what has Danny been doing. Exactly, yeah. Um, and I, I know James is probably doing a lot of interviews at the time, so mm-hmm. I figured I'll try and get someone who doesn't do that many and see what they're like. Yeah. Um, and I, Rick and Danny were great. Um, so James was playing in the Tupelo Music Hall and, of course, Richie, how many tickets do you want? Yeah. And I said... I, I think you were away or something at the time. And I said, I only want one. <laughs> and he said, really? You only want one ticket? I said, yeah, I'm going to go on my own. Because I've never seen you guys play. Yeah. Even with Lenny, because, you know, me being from Ireland, you, you, you only toured in England with, Mag- right. with actually with Magnum. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, the only to- I believe they toured in England with Magnum, I think, in 88. And then I think they came back for In Your Face for, for some shows with someone else. Hmm. Um, but they, I don't think they ever played in Ireland. And um, so I arrived at the show um, and he he told me, he said, listen, Richie, uh, we're doing the meet and greet after the show. Just come up and introduce yourself again because it's been a while since I've seen you. And I, yeah. you know, um, so I said, yeah, no problem. So the show, I think, the thing about the Tupelo Music Hall, that's a little bit different to other venues. They, they start early. Yep, So do. If, if there's no support act listed and it says that the show starts at 7, the band starts, starts at, seven. at 7. Right. So at 7 o'clock comes around, there's no, no sign of the band on the stage. And then I remember J.B. Frank and who else was it? It might have been Dan, Rick. Yeah, J.B. and Rick came out. And they started jamming. And then they played a song with J.B. sang. And I'm I'm looking. This is like at about seven ten, uh-huh. right? And I'm thinking, what the fuck is going on here? Okay, so what happened was uh, they were late getting to the venue. Something uh-huh. happened to their transportation or whatever. And of course, you have to be on stage at a certain time to probably to get paid. Yeah. So the two guys that actually were there went out and did something, and I, I think they did a jam and then a song, and then JV said that, oh, just in case you're wondering. The other guys just got here. We'll be back out in five minutes and we're going to do the full show. Yeah. Uh, so they came out, they did the, they did the whole show. They did, I think they did, I think they did nearly all of the first record. They did some songs off In Your Face. Uh, they were excellent. Keith St. John was brilliant. Um, and then they did the meet and greet afterwards. And the two blow probably holds, I don't know, 500. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So yeah. I'd say there was... It, I'd be generous in saying there was 250 there. Yeah. Um, it wasn't that well attended. And uh, so they had the meet and greet, and I was in line. And um, all the band were lined up at the table, you know, the merch behind them, take, you know, signing stuff. Yeah. So, of course, I James is at the end of the table. Yeah. So I the first person I think I met, I think, was uh, Danny. Yeah. And then I met Rick. And then I met Keith, Keith and JB. And then James. And I remember James looked up at me and he said, I know you. And I said, yeah, I'm Richie from Focus on Metal. He said, hang on a minute, Richie, stand over there. Right? These are, these are nearly all done. Just wait there. Yeah. All right, wait, I want to talk to you. And um, I said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll wait. He said, can you wait? I said, oh, yeah, I can wait. No problem. No problem. And um, so I waited. And then James came over and talked to me for a minute or two. And then he 
he brought me over to every single person in the band and introduced me to all of them and said, this is Richie from Focus on Metal. He's been helping promote the band. And he's actually, in, Danny, he interviewed you and, and Ricky interviewed you. Yeah. I said, oh, yeah, your accent, I recognize it now. So I ended up talking to the whole band for like about 10 minutes. Yeah. But again, he didn't have to do any of that. Right. And that, to me, showed just what a nice guy he was. Yes, yeah, yeah always and gracious. Cla- and a class act. Yeah. Um, and I lost touch with him. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, he's dead now. And, you know, it's like, fuck. Especially, I'm not saying I was a friend of his, but I met him a few times. He's always really nice. And, yeah. you know, it hit me a different way than Tony did. Yeah. Tony, I know the band, I love right. the music, but with James, I love the, I, you know, I, he was just a nice guy. I've actually met the fucking guy. Yeah. And they hit me in two different ways. Sure. Um, so that was a tough day. Yeah. No, it was. And like I said, I, I would, I bantered back and forth with him quite a bit on Twitter. Like I said, during the holidays, I didn't even realize like, well, I haven't heard from him for a while. And there's, there's a few people like that, that um, I do go back and forth a bit with, Coverdale being another one to the point that. Nikki is always like, how the hell does it keep showing up on my feed? And I was like, sorry. Is he very active on Twitter, is oh, yeah, he? Covered yeah. Loves yeah. it, does he? But it's, what else is he doing? <laughs> it's just like, it's, uh, you know, and then um, Wayne from Lillian Axe, same thing, you know, being back and forth with him quite a bit. And There's, there's a few people that I do. Um, James was another one. So, yeah, and it, yeah, I guess, like you said, just an absolute class act. The The fact that he just was willing to do anything to make us comfortable when we were backstage. And it was like, when we were back there, we had like 200% of his attention too. He was not distracted by anything else. He never, he never, I think in the end he said, I'm sorry guys. We've we've been with him for a while. I'm sorry guys. I have to get ready to go on stage. You're like, it's James. That's fine. It's okay. You know, you've done more than enough. Forest, you know, yeah. oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Don't worry about it, James. Oh, yeah. You're fine. <laughs> you know, he was he was always willing to go with us, you know, that extra step mm-hmm. as if it was, you know, I could do a little bit more for these guys and I'm sorry. And I'm like, James, calm down. Yeah. You know, calm down. Um, but he was a fabulous drummer, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. Um, I think when we had Keith Olsen on the show, he was the, the guy that he'd bring in to do the sessions. He brought him and Pilsen. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that uh, you look back on your on your albums now, and you know you see you see a band like I, I'm a, I'm a fan of a band called Dare. Uh huh. They're another a UK band, and they did a record with Keith, their second album, and they kind of changed their sound and they brought in the big name producer Keith Olsen. Yeah. And you have the picture of the band on it, and of course when you read the liner notes now, it's additional musicians James Kotak and and yeah and Pilsen. Well, I mean the thing the thing was that you know he was the full package, right? Because he could go out there and put on an incredible show as a drummer. He wasn't just in the back. It was like I am here, and you're gonna pay attention to me. But the whole time he did it, he was also just rock solid. Oh yeah, and then in the studio. He, he, it was, and that's why Keith liked him, right? I mean, the guy was always dead nuts on, mm-hmm. just like a human metronome, could feel the song, kept the beat, didn't get out of time, and that's why Keith liked him. He, and so he, he was the full package for a drummer. He was the guy that 
you bring in you've got two days to get the drum tracks maybe it's not working with the with the, the drummer and the band yeah and here's here's the payment uh-huh. and, you, and you know that he'll deliver yeah within a day or two days and, and nail it and then yeah. leave he was that guy for keith yeah exactly yeah and it's yeah it's it's definitely a Sad. It's sad. And it's another one that hits close, too, because it's kind of like, geez, it's like... 61. Yeah, it's like I'm only a couple of years from that myself, you know? It's like, holy crap. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, of course, the outpouring on social media uh, from fellow musicians. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, was, Don Don did a really nice heartfelt post, which is which is pretty cool, but, yeah. He did, yeah. Um, and I, from fellow drummers. Yeah. Um, because drummers stick together usually yeah Yeah. (laughs) um and it hit a lot of people you know pretty hard and they all talked about knowing him over the years yeah having a great time with him how how, he was such a nice guy yeah um good family man and you know it's it sucks and i I don't know what what else to say to be honest yeah these are just going to they're going to keep coming because all the music that we love, all the guys are getting up there. Unfortunately, and yeah. Yeah. It's, I've said this before on the show, I used to be a big fan of Classic Rock magazine. Yeah. And now that magazine, the news section at the front, there's like a page or two now, it's obituaries. Yep. Because all those people that are yeah. from the Classic Rock bands that are was, That was how Vintage Guitar was getting too. Is, really? Yeah. Yeah. And and of course, with, with Vintage Guitar, I mean, it does bridge, you know, the whole guitar community as well. So you had a, more than just rock, but yeah, it was like, yeah, just, this is, this is getting bigger. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. So I'm sorry to start the show on a fucking <laughs> dour note. No, you know what I said? James meant a lot to the show. He helped us out a lot. He helped us out a lot with the little mountain project as well. And, uh, yeah, it's, I think we owe it to him just to kind of, Put a little tribute there. Good guy. Yeah, absolutely. Just a fucking good guy. And Tony Clark, and I'm going to miss him too, because fucking great band. Yeah. Great songwriter. Underrated. Really underrated. So if their new album is out, if you've never really heard the band before, give them a listen. Yeah. You might be surprised. You might like them if you like your hard rock. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember. I know I don't have any Magnum over there. That's, I know that for sure. Believe it or not, that's that's something I do know that's not open. <laughs> um, I might have some digitally. I'm not sure. I might have some digitally. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting the new album. The actual the album will be out by the time you hear this. And I know that some of those album art workbooks I have, some of the stuff shows up from them too. Because, like you were saying, stunning. that is that classic. It's stunning. You know that that kind of. They continued on with that, but that was, a, you know, within an era, there was a lot of album covers like that. So, yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, it sucks. Yeah. Roll on the rest of 2024. <laughs> All right. Well, on maybe a happier note, had a chance to talk to, uh, to Darren from the DLR cast. He had hit me up uh, a few weeks ago, actually, about a uh, new book coming out, the DLR book, and how David Lee Roth changed the world. So, uh have a conversation with him, and I think I'll roll it now. Hey, metalheads, kick back, relax, 
raise the horns and stay tuned for another original Focus on Metal, Metal Side Chat with your host, Scott Thompson. All right, Focus on Metal listeners, you know, I don't often get a chance to talk about things having to do with Van Halen. I think Greg Renoff is probably the one... uh, one example I had where I was able to kind of express my Van Halen fandom, but I am going to be able to express it this week as I am talking with Darren Paltrowitz, who is uh, not only one of the hosts of the DLR cast, but also the author of a new book, The DLR Book, How David Lee Roth Changed the World. How you doing, Darren? Scott, I am great. Thank you for having me. Big fan of your work. What you did on the Little Mountain Studio, incredible stuff. So great to connect with somebody who really knows their stuff. Awesome. Thank you. That was uh, that was definitely a labor of love. You know, a lot of the projects we've done, it's just, yeah, are kind of an all-in, and uh, it was great. That was actually one of these things that, uh, you know, you as an author and how you had to delve in with some a lot of the stuff you came out with in the book, it's the same thing of, of just going to all of these people, and we, we were almost like joking that we kind of got a hold of everybody but like the coffee boy down the street when we did that episode so uh yeah it was, it was great fun and uh so you obviously you have your own podcast the dlr cast and how long has that been going on uh three years somewhere around there and then i started my own the paltrowcast with darren paltrowitz about two years before that and during the pandemic i also turned that into a tv series so sometimes the two overlap in some ways or i'll throw david lee roth and van halen questions in with my regular interviews like i <laughs> this is sort of embarrassing and i think you'll find it amusing i was interviewing the, the actor brian greenberg on a junket a couple days ago really big actor husband of jamie chung and i said hey last question uh you're a musician beyond your acting and directing was Van Halen a big influence on you? And he goes, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Why? And I was just thinking, okay, I didn't get the answer I was hoping for. My quick response was, uh, because every time you say Van Halen in an article, the traffic goes up 40%. <laughs> and <laughs> that's the best I could have for him. Yeah, that's a good comeback, though. It, it's it's true, though. It's We were actually recording some stuff recently, and we were just kind of talking about what type of of comments and, and mentions within just social media would cause, like, the most severe reactions or vitriol or whatever. And one of the top ones we had was Sammy Hagar versus David Lee Roth. It was, oh, it was like, yeah. one of the top ones. <laughs> it just kicked off just incredible animosity, and, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, there's certain things within the Van Halen space that are going to be magnets for negativity. And that will bring more hate comments and, and war, inner war turmoil than anything. But if you were to do a thing about how great 1984 was or how great Ian Smile was, it will be nothing but positive. <laughs> yeah, that, that, is, that is very true. Absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's great to also be talking to a fellow podcaster. You know, I mean, we've been doing this, this one for, what, 13 years now? Yeah, you're so, at almost at episode 400, is it? That's incredible. Uh, we're actually, we're fast approaching uh, 600. This, this one, I think, is going to be episode 584. 
I mean, that's what I said. I said, you're almost at episode 600, and then you misheard me, and you said oh. 400, Scott. And it's, it's, uh, you know. it's all that listening to VH in my youth. My ears aren't what they used to be. <laughs> no, no, my bad for getting the number wrong. But I think if you look at the number of shows that have gone on 10-plus years, it's like you, Corolla, uh, Mark Marin, Rogan. There's not a lot of people that stuck with it for 10 years. Yeah, it, it's it's tough. It, it's definitely tough. It, and of course, I remember way back in the beginning too that you know you tell somebody you would do on a podcast or a netcast, and you get a blank look. Yeah. And and now it's it's really now everyone understands. And I think in a way, I think even the pandemic increased that awareness as people were stuck inside. And you know, you probably saw that with your show and the extra things you were doing. Mm-hmm. We were yeah. definitely putting out a bunch of. At one point, we were doing two to three shows a week because we got requests of like. I'm isolated. I'm bored. Is there anything else you can do? So we were doing like these very short interviews. A lot of artists were really cooperative with giving like 20, 30 minute interviews. And uh, yeah. so even with the 584, it's, it's actually a lot more episodes that weren't numbered, but it's, it's good. It's, it's a, it's a good space. And like I said, I don't often now get to talk to other podcasters, but it, it is great to chat with you. Thank you. The feeling is mutual. And when it comes to doing press on a book like this, a lot of people, they do the gauge of, so has uh, Newsday written about this? Or you're going to be on The Tonight Show? Or have you been on Seth Meyers? I was having that conversation with people a couple days ago, and I'm going, you know, no, uh, of course, to any of those. But the thing is, I'm probably going to sell more copies being on a show like yours mm-hmm. than I am these mass media mainstream things. Because the attention span of somebody who can dig into a podcast that's going to be more than 20 minutes is really a fan for life kind of uh, fan or listener or observer, that kind of a thing. So I enjoy the grassroots aspect of speaking with people who still love Van Halen decades later and still love Dave decades later and aren't giving that up anytime soon. And going on podcasts like yours is really what I want to do instead of doing, you know, six minute sound bites and, you know, talking with people who know jump and you really caught me and just a jiggle and that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And the other part too, I think that with podcasts that, that I like is that, you know, a lot of our listeners, they know what I like. They know what Richie likes. Sure. And sure. so they're like, Oh, okay. Well, we like the same stuff. So they're, they're more apt to, want to pay attention and they're more apt to want to go out and buy that product if they're like, well, we like all these other things and they haven't steered us wrong, as opposed to, you know, like you said, a lot of the mass media where it's like, yeah, they've they've got you on as some maybe some obligatory thing, but there's no really depth (laughs) of whether they really know anything about Van Halen or or anything like that. So it's, it's, yeah, I think that's also the the power of of coming on and doing that type of stuff. For sure. And you would be surprised about how few people in the traditional industry want, uh, and I'm talking about the publishing industry, how few people want a Van Halen book at this point in time. Because, you know, common sense with you and me, sorry to lump you in with me, hope that's not offensive, uh, Scott, but common sense to me goes, this band sold over 50 million albums in the U.S. alone, two albums that sold over 10 million copies. So if your book sells to 0.01% of that fan base, you've done really well. Mm -hmm. And some of the people I pitched the book to went, yeah, I just don't know who I would sell it to. And you go, "Uh, any publisher with a brain? (laughs) 
<laughs> and so it's this weird thing where, to me, music has always been an obsessive main hobby of mine. But the average person you meet just goes, I like that song. And they don't care about who wrote it or who played on it or the trivia or the production behind it or what happened in the music video, who directed the music video. When you meet the people that are all about their, that stuff, mm-hmm. they're, they're friends for life. And, you know, your podcast, probably every single person who listens to that is one of these people. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and yeah, it boggles my mind to think that publishers wouldn't realize that. I mean, you've got a rabid need to learn more about Van Halen because Van Halen, similar to ACDC, has mm-hmm. got a pretty closed camp, you know, oh, yeah. and for a lot of it, which is we'll get into it with your book, too. But, you know, anybody that can get into some of those people that are willing to talk and be able to put that in a book, it's like it's valuable. It's gold. You know, I think of all the folks that, that Greg went out and talked to. Yeah. For, for his book and, and how insightful that was. And you've got in April, you know, there's a lot of myself included really revved up that Martin Popoff has the Van Halen at 50 book yeah. coming out and stuff. And again, it's, I think Van Halen books, they are just great sellers, but it's good that, you know, at least you got backbeat to, to come on board and they've, I mean, they're definitely, they're a music press kind of company and they've got some awesome awesome titles in in their lineup as well they've actually got a really cool pedal book that they just put out that i had mm-hmm. to go and order the instant i saw it but yeah it's it's great that you did find a home for the book though thank you thank you it was going to be a self-publish if i didn't wind up with backbeat but fortunately i did through my agent selling the book really quickly and it was surprising about how few people wanted a van halen book and meanwhile, cookbooks and smoothie books, you know, there's an infinite budget for, for those kinds of things and vampire young adult novels and things like that. They'll, they'll sell uh, every day. Yeah. And, and yet I think some publishers probably don't realize is that, you know, like people in my age demographic, we have the, the you know, expendable income yeah, to buy the income, things sure. that, that – you know, we were so tied to, you know, when we were teenagers. And so yeah. and this book just fits that perfectly. Thank you very much. That was uh, part of the goal. I, I started writing the book because I want to uh, solve or at least try and solve some of these Dave mysteries. Because as you pointed out, Van Halen and ACDC are these two closed camp kind of bands where a lot of people are under non-disclosures. The former members don't pipe up very much, and that's probably because they're under non-disclosures or some in some way are incentivized not to speak up. The former managers are either no, no longer with us or they're not talking, that kind of a thing. And uh, the weird part, not that you asked, was as many things as I solved, I think I came away with three times more unsolved things. Uh, that's how crazy the Dave and Van Halen camps can be with things. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, I'm, I basically have about... I'll call it a two-degree separation from uh, Gary, and oh yeah, 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 and, Massachusetts, and, yeah, exactly. And then you got your James Lomenzo connection too, right? Not really James, but but definitely Gary, and he will not ever say a word about anything with that, even if you know it's not going anywhere. He just doesn't. It's incredibly closed, um, and I'm sure it must have been frustrating for you in that same sense with 
Eddie Anderson must know some incredible crap, and it's like yeah. the guy is probably never, ever going to talk. Yeah, I would say there's around 10 people who know where all the bodies are buried mm. and haven't done I hope that's not a crude expression to, to use. I'm used to using that expression, not being a horror person. My wife's the horror person in the household, but the bodies are buried, meaning like know all the secrets, right. know all the stuff so you'd never mess with them because if they opened up their mouth, et cetera. And Ed Anderson is close to the top of that list. Not that you have to rank these people. Yeah. You could say Pete Angelus absolutely yeah. is. Those are my one, my one and two would be the, you know, the people that would be incredible if that's they were what to I, actually open their mouths up. That's what I thought. But I think Matt Sensio, who word is he's near you in Massachusetts, mm. Matt Sensio really knows a lot of stuff because uh, do you know who I'm talking about? I don't know if I'm too inside baseball here. Uh, I'm not familiar with Matt. Okay, so Matt's brother was the MTV VJ, John Sencio. And Matt started off as Dave's base tech in the late 90s. Okay. And then after Ed Anderson was let go as manager, you know, he basically went from bodyguard and assistant to proper manager. And him and Dave had a falling out in the late 90s. And then another person came into the picture who didn't last very long. And Matt Sencio basically went from base tech to assistant to Dave's manager. Mm. And I'm going to say that the ship ran smooth as smooth can be when Matt Sencio was in charge from the late 90s through some of the Van Halen reunion. So he had close to 10 years, around 10 years, being Dave's trusted source. He was in okay. All the meetings. He, everyone liked Matt Sensio. So he was there through the K-Rock radio show, which as messy as the, the radio show was, it's not fully Dave's fault. The book kind of goes into, you know, why it's not fully Dave's fault. And by the way, that's another Massachusetts uh, thing right there. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Because his test shows were done in Boston. <laughs> yep, I, I actually was an FM DJ at BCN sister station. So, yeah, very, very oh, familiar wow. with that. So, yeah. so putting you on the spot here, uh, Small World, do you know Gary Marino? I don't know Gary Marino. I'll, I'm going to put you in touch with him. So he's a stand-up comic in the Boston area uh -huh. who produces the shows besides hosting them. And he was around or helped produce or write something for the test shows in okay. Boston. And uh, I spoke to Hutch, who oh, basically yeah. went from there to K-Rock. And that was his last gig, I think, before retiring. Hutch is a great guy. Uh, once he trusts you, he's honest. Yeah. And I think that was a common thing for my book. And stop me if I'm talking too much here. But when you first say to somebody, I want to speak to you about your time with David Lee Roth, like at first you're either going to get a, I don't ever want to talk about that person ever again, or you get a, I'm under non-disclosure, no thanks, or a why and what do you want to know? Yeah. And if you go to some of these people and you go, look, Dave hasn't had a book about him in forever. He's not commenting about stuff. I just want to document rock history. I think he's the greatest front man of all time, if not, you know, just one of the greatest. And there's nobody defending him or Van Halen, period. If this continues, Van Halen is going to go the way of Grand Funk Railroad or Credence, where it's a huge band, but infighting entirely damages and disappears the legacy. Right. 
And so some of the people I spoke with, once I said something along those lines, they'd go, okay, yeah, 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 let's keep it positive, but uh, I'll talk to you, but don't tell X, Y, and Z that I'm, I'm speaking to you, okay? And I was able to build trust with some of these people, and after you interview one of them and you show you're not looking for the bad stories, they'll introduce you to other people and other people and other people. And then you kind of realize like, okay, well, these are the nineties, Dave people. These are the two thousands, Dave people. These are the eighties, Dave people. And not everyone's under non-disclosure. It seems like a weird thing about who is and who's not, but without naming names, I know this married couple that both worked with Dave. She is, and he's not. And you're like, how does how is one person under non-disclosure and the other person isn't? Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And and the, like I said, you know, you talk about the cast of characters, and and you know, when you start talking about folks like Matt and stuff, yeah. Once you get past, and I like how you have the intermission in the book. It's like <laughs> from you. from the beginning up to intermission, it's kind of this stable environment, and then after intermission. It's like the cast comes at you fast and furious with all these people that are there and they're gone. And it's like, holy crap. And I could just imagine you trying to storyboard this all out to kind of keep it all in place. But yeah, after, you know, the I mean, I thought that the no holds barbecue was kind of chaos. But then you, yeah. after intermission, it's like, what the hell's going on? I entirely agree. The book that I started ended up not fully being the book that I came away with. And I think it's mostly positive about Dave. Like I didn't go to in, into most of the dirt that I could have gone into partially because I don't want to get sued, but because I wanted to paint a good legacy for the guy. Cause mm -hmm. I don't think he's doing anything to cement his legacy for how great he was and how much he accomplished and how he influenced everybody. They're, they're, killing their legacy more every day, Van Halen and Dave. And it's, it's a travesty. It's an absolute travesty. So that said, the more you go into Dave as well run as everything was under Matt Sensio, it's chaos. Like not just, not just the no holds barbecue album, but that diamond Dave album. Is that the worst album cover that he could have possibly made? It's just, I mean, yeah, everything there just got very bizarre. Just, yeah, like so a lot of times you were thinking, you know, even I'm reading the book too, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And half of it is because I wanted to. Mm -hmm. If you look at the past few years of what he's done, it's all so disconnected. If the average artist would have done all that, you'd go, this guy is nonstop busy creating stuff, and he's an artist. Because if you go, okay, so all these John 5 things are finally coming out, all these re-records that he's doing, the Roth Show podcast, the Roth Project digital comic book, the weird uh, dance videos that he's put out, the uh, random things that maybe didn't make his podcast or could have, and then were disappeared and shelved. Okay, all these things, he puts them out. He puts them on usually Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, and then one or two of the posts get deleted, reposted, and then possibly permanently deleted. So by that, I mean the jump re-record is gone. Mm. Uh, the Just Like Paradise thing that he called a remix, but I confirmed it was him basically taking the existing vocals and recutting the instruments around it. Uh, it's gone. <laughs> 
Um, no Holds Barbecue is still on his YouTube, but the credits are cut from the end of it, and Bart Walsh's face is blurred out of it. So you don't know what's going to appear, when it's going to appear, and when it's going to disappear. <laughs> yeah, it's that's one thing I've noticed with the YouTube channel is it's it's like if you see something that interests you, you just got to watch it right then and there, no matter what else you were thinking. Or it could just oh no no no, that's not what you do, Scott. What you do is you copy and paste the YouTube URL into your browser bar, and then I, I learned this at one of my investigator conferences. You in the words YouTube. You take the Y-O-U and you replace it with zero, zero, zero. Mm. So it's, it has the exact URL and then zero, zero, zero tube. Mm. And then it leads you to this downloader site. So immediately you download every single thing for when it's going to get pulled. Like that 84 Donington Van Halen show, right now you can't find it. Yeah, Grab them while you can. Hmm. I'll have to remember that. I know I used to have an app that used to let me do that, and uh, it like somehow it lost support or whatever. But it used to be able I could yeah. just click on anything like that for the video, and it would just go in. It would bring it down. It was great, but yeah, it, it just it stopped being supported and died. So, well, that's good to know. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know, like you just said about trying to paint in a positive light, and and that's good because you know, I mean, the title of the book is "How David Lee Roth Changed the World," and you can't really have a this kind of negative dirt kind of throwing book and have a title like that. And, and w one thing I'll say is that you come away, at least I came away each time I finished a chapter where you were, you were thinking about Dave in a way you may not have thought about him before. Mm. I don't know if you did that by design, but, but just the way that you wrote those out, it, it, it just kind of made you think about like, oh, you know, what was his motivation for that? And wow, that was pretty <laughs> odd that he did that. And, and it, uh, yeah, just it, not that you were trying to actually force people to have a certain opinion, but it seemed like you made people want to think about what their opinion was and maybe reconsider it. Oh, uh, I wasn't intentionally trying to do any of that. My style of writing is not for everybody in that I speak just like I write. Mm. And whereas a lot of people trying to make themselves seem much smarter and they use words that they would never say out loud, they would never say things like as acquiesce. <laughs> uh, if somebody says that in conversation, you go, get out of here. No, and don't you make do them, that. You make them spell it. <laughs> <laughs> Obsequious. Like they use stupid SAT words in their books. And I don't think that Van Halen, that belongs in Van Halendom. Van Halen, in my humble opinion, is really, really smart people doing virtuoso-like things, but pretending like they're dumb and can't form a sentence. Mm. So in other words, it's a bunch of geniuses pretending to be slackers. And I kind of wanted to show my realization of that within the book, that nobody ever describes Dave as being dumb. Everyone talks about you know how smart and savvy he is, but then nobody really talks about the inconsistency of him trying to look like a male bimbo at times when in reality we know that he was running the show and hiring and firing everybody. Yeah. It's, it's almost like Phyllis Diller. I don't know if that's a crazy reference to make, but you see throughout history, it, all these people with lasting careers who are really calling the shots but pretending to be dummies mm. or slackers, it's exactly the opposite. So that's kind of what I wanted to emphasize, that he was a guy 
playing chess, the, the stupid expression, I'm playing chess while you're playing checkers, that kind of a thing. That was going on until a certain point in time. Now, I, now unfortunately, knowing what I know, I know that's not the case at all in Team Dave and has not been the case for at least five years. It's been insane what's going on. Come on, Dave. <laughs> Like I said, I just, I, you know, when I was reading it through it, it was, it just kind of made me think a lot. One of the ones that, that really made me think a lot was the, the incident with the, with the violinist. Oh yeah. You know, the fact that she watched somebody else get there late and just be dismissed. And yet she felt she really didn't belong there. She wasn't up for the job and yet she was abided with and allowed to stay. And it was like, hmm, and you know, what's the the motivation for that. And, and it was this like a, you know, a smart way that Dave indicated that he was in charge or it, it just, that was one of the ones that I, I, I thought a lot about after I read that chapter. So she, I, I think we spent two hours or so on, on zoom talking mm-hmm. and she is a high IQ, talented, accomplished person, Melissa Elena Reiner. When you go down her credits, you wouldn't put Dave in the first 10 names of what she's doing. That, And by that, I mean, there's certain people that Dave worked with that Dave is the first and the second name in the parentheses because it's the most famous person you worked with or that's what you want to be kind of remembered by. And I'm not saying that Billy Sheen hasn't done amazing, amazing things, but if it says Billy Sheen parentheses, it's probably going to say Mr. Big, mm-hmm. then Dave, yep. then Dallas. Yep. Maybe you'll say Niacin or the Tony Levin stuff for, Wait, no, no, he wasn't Tony Levin. Um, it'll just mention some of the super groups that he was part of. But the key is Dave is pretty much always the second name on everything he does. But Steve Vai, while we think of him as the Roth guy, it's not always the second or third name because Vai is a star in his own right. In the case of Melissa Elena Reiner, you know, it's Jonas Brothers, Frank Sinatra Jr. and Sr., I think, Il Devo, like some of the biggest artists, period. She played the strings, she arranged the strings, etc. Like, genius. And I think she was first taken aback, like, how did you find me? <laughs> Uh, and the reality was I just looked through the credits to find people to interview for the book. Mm. And sometimes there'd be these people that you'd go, I've never heard of this person before. And it turns out they were super, super important to Dave's legacy. Uh, Dave Jellison was one of them. He's all over the first few chapters of the book. And I've encountered other people who really know everything. And they're just like, yeah, I don't like doing interviews. And you go, wait, but you know everything, and you know all the stuff is incorrect. And they go, yeah, but I don't like doing interviews. (laughs) So, you know, Dave's world is a mix of self-promoters and shy people. Yeah, that was the same kind of reaction we would get with the Little Mountain Project, too, was there were some people that just, yeah, they knew everything, but it was really, and a lot of times it took, like, somebody else to tell them, hey, you really should talk to these guys. They're honest. They won't do anything. It's not clickbait. uh, they, they're really dedicated, and then they would talk to us. But a lot of times, there was certain people in that series that they never really wanted to, you know, go and and get interviewed for that stuff. So yeah, it's 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 interesting when you get people like that. The only Little Mountain person I believe I interviewed the book was Mark LaFrance, mm. who sang backup on there, uh-huh. and that's a guy. Yeah, yeah, he knows everything. <laughs> he's 
you know, everyone has heard Mark LaFrance sing mm-hmm. and not know it's Mark LaFrance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's all over all kinds <laughs> of crap. It's incredible the amount of stuff that, that his vocals are on. Yeah, no one knows who he is. Yep. And one of the mysteries that I wasn't able to finalize or confirm, and I'm wondering if you ever heard this. So I know that you interviewed Bob Rock for <laughs> your series. Yep. What I've heard from really smart people is that Bob Ezrin was originally supposed to do what became A Little Ain't Enough, and that they did demo She's My Machine within those sessions. Have you ever heard those rumors? I have not. So I don't know how you go from Bob 1 to Bob 2, you know, because to me, Bob Ezrin and Bob Rock are kind of the opposite as producers, aside from being Canadian Bobs. Yeah. They, uh, I, would, I would say Bob Ezrin is more string, uh, lush, uh, layered production, and Bob Rock is a little more rock. Yeah, yeah, he is, and and, and uh, Ezra is more of light and shade and dynamics and all of that, and, yeah. and Bob Rock's sound is more of what occurs kind of after 1987 kind of stuff. Yeah, it's very different. And one person, um, we didn't really talk about this within the book, but he was a Vancouver resident, but not originally from Vancouver. He died uh, a little while after I interviewed him, Doug Short. He went from being uh, the nickname number five front of house guy, sound engineer, to eventually a tour manager for Dave. And Cindy Lauper was another client of his, a really loved, respected guy in the business. So he lived in Vancouver, I believe, until his passing. And he told me he bought uh, Dave's throne from a tic- uh, particular strip club that was being torn down <laughs> or closed. I'd have to look up what it was called. But he apparently Dave was a real fixture around Vancouver in that time. Mm. No, I, I would I would imagine he was actually also the one that uh, caused them to have to repaint the entire back wall of Little Mountain <laughs> back to white again because of the. Uh, the painting that he put up on the back that yeah. a lot of people were like, ah, oh, that's a little too much. So they basically painted the entire back of the studio white again. Dave and his strip club stuff intrigues <laughs> me. I didn't go the, the, too deeply into this in the book. I don't think I mentioned the strip club stuff of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. I mentioned it, it the Crazy Girls L.A. era mm-hmm. yep. from the mid to late 90s that a lot of stuff happened there. mid-90s when he was in New York that he met the album cover artist for Your Filthy Little Mouth from Knowing a Mutual Stripper Friend. But the kind of person that spends all their time at strip clubs, uh, you wonder, is it because the buffet is good? I don't think that's the case for Dave. Is it why? Why do people spend that much time at a strip club? Like, I, call me call me crazy here because I don't like strip clubs. But if you go twice a year, that's a lot. And the number of times he goes to strip clubs, I don't get it. Is there do business deals happen there? Why? Yeah, I mean that's that's very <laughs> interesting. You know, I think in some cases, probably if you're meeting someone there like that and you're the fixture like Dave, now you actually have this kind of advantage in any kind of talks or negotiations because 
in some cases, someone is going to be clearly out of their element, and you definitely have the negotiation and discussion upper hand. Yeah, a lot of people think that golf is where you close the deals because maybe you get buzzed on the course and you drink beer and mm. you're laughing and you're in nature. But strip clubs are more nocturnal, dark, yep. um, fried food usually involved, uh, loud music. That's the opposite of what you'd hear in or around a golf club. So maybe it's it's a tactic that I'd have to explore for the next book. I don't know, but <laughs> there's just so many things about Dave. And, and not that you asked, but I go, so you're telling me the same guy is extremely into mountain climbing and strip clubs and martial arts and traveling third world countries. And it just never made sense to me how he was able to do all this while doing an album every two to three years and touring, you know, pretty comprehensive tours over time. So that's yet another mystery that I, I want to one day figure out how he got all this done or if he was faking liking certain things, like he had body doubles or lookalikes like Saddam Hussein. Man's got to know his limitations. But one of the other things that I thought about, and it's interesting you bring this up right now, because now you just reminded him about this. I was thinking some of the same stuff, which is like, how does he do all these things? How does he find the, the, the mental capacity to be juggling all of this? And, and one thing that did occur to me, and it's probably occurred to you as well, is the fact that he's not married. He never had yeah. this like really significant <laughs> other relationship, which usually consumes yeah. some part of our mental overhead. So to not have yeah. that, it probably gave him that mental capacity to to do all that. And with that kind of ADHD constantly going mind, he needed to fill that and he filled yeah. it with all kinds of stuff. You raise a really good point. As much as we all love our significant other or partner or whatever you want to call the other person that you choose to spend most of your time with, they inevitably reach that point where they go, hey, you need to go to sleep or you have to come here uh, tomorrow or do this tomorrow. And so Dave's had 45-ish years of not having that, mm. not having that hook or that anchor on top of growing up rich. As much as he wants to talk about, you know, I went to this integrated school where I was bust. A lot of people I've spoken to off the record are starting to call BS on, on you know, his Steve Martin, I was born a poor black boy kind of thing. Uh, that's yet another thing that I maybe have to eventually delve into a little bit more. But I think that he never had that person going, you can't do blank because he had a privileged upbringing and he always just had more money coming in through whatever reason. I didn't get into this into the book, but I think he also did really well with real estate, but never talked about it. Mm. And he was also not just a privileged upbringing, but he was a very supportive upbringing as well, which is, you know, I think back to high school and there was one family in the school that everybody in that family was an incredible incredible musician in fact one of yeah. the brothers was actually a producer at bcn now that you reminded me oh. he, uh, he produced uh the afternoon show the parents just were so supportive and not that they were wealthy or anything but they were willing to put whatever spare money there was into getting the kids a pas and microphones guitars and amps and, yeah and these 
kids were all fantastic musicians and uh you know one of them still like heavily into the music business one of the most incredible guitar players i ever knew and just you know that support as opposed to my parents, where they wanted me to have nothing to do with music whatsoever. <laughs> so mine was more right. of a rebellion thing, which still exists today. But I think that's an incredibly important part, though, is that Dave was always supported. And, he, and so he kind of felt like he was, you know, had his mission and he had people behind him and all of that. Yeah, he tries to muddy the waters uh, and saying, and me and my dad were fighting, blah, 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 blah. He bought the, the mansion from his dad in the early 90s. Yeah. And his sisters either live there or part of the time live there on the property. And his sisters have also been arts-related people over the years. Right. So this, uh, you know, the accent is fake. <laughs> A lot of the things are lore or kind of fake. And the, so the book largely looks at where does Diamond Dave end versus David Lee Roth or David Roth. Mm. And the jury is still out on all that because some of the people I speak with are like, oh, dude, are you kidding me? He's never, ever in character. He's, he is the biggest frown you'll ever see, the, the worst anger temper that you'll ever see. And then there's other people that go, oh, I was with him 24 hours a day. Man, that guy always tells jokes and stories 24-7. So you don't know which Dave you're going to get if that Dave is around for days or that Dave just flips on and off depending on who's in the room. Yeah, I got that out of the book, too, where you had this, yeah, this big dichotomy of, oh, he's he's that 24 hours a day. And then other people, exactly like you said, they were like, oh, no, he's a taskmaster and he's all business. <laughs> and it was like, how, how do you how do you do that? Like as a public person with lots of people around you, it's kind of bizarre. Yeah. So he does highbrow and lowbrow on top of that. Mm. And with writing this book, the story just changed a lot of times because I didn't want to go, well, what this person said contradicted this person. I want to instead let you read both, decide if both are true or one person was exaggerating. One person I know totally told me something that's misremembered, but I left it in anyway. And it's a particular person said, oh, yeah, when I toured with Dave, we did this. And you go, uh, he didn't play any gigs in support of Crazy from the Heat. So maybe you created a memory from another gig and thought that was out with Dave. So so certain people just think of themselves as these permanent fixtures in Dave's life mm. when the reality is they hung out five times. And then other people were actually around for 10, 12 years, but there's only a handful of people that were there from the 80s forward that never left. Yeah. And, and those are family members, really. I don't think I could think of one person who's still with them from 1980-whatever because – you know, yes, some people died, but everyone got fired or quit eventually. Yeah, yeah. It was good. When you, know, when you talk about the family, too, it was great that in the beginning of the book, you kind of laid out the Roth clan as well. Oh, thank um, you. Because it was it was so helpful when you got later in and, you, and you know, somebody would come back in the picture. You know, maybe it was either a support or an admonishment or whatever it was, but at least you knew, like, how that all laid out. 
and and then you just wove those into the narratives when they where they belong. So it was it was good to to have that kind of initial mental basis for what surrounded him. And that was, I thought that was a great way to open the book. Cause I, you know, initially, you know, when I first started reading, I thought I was going to delve into, you know, more <laughs> of his early years and maybe get into like, you know, red ball jet and all this stuff. And it was like, wow, this is a, this is really different. And then like this, you know, very kind of quick transition to Van Halen. And the fact that you, were able to edit yourself to the fact that you you limited kind of that Van Halen initial Van Halen thing is mm-hmm. it's a chapter and then it just moves on to, to crazy from the heat and uh, so it you didn't do the you know publishing version of clickbait with like eight <laughs> chapters of Van Halen to pull people in you stuck with what your narrative was with just as you know this is David Lee Roth and it's and it's a book that you know is part of the Van Halen legacy but it's not solely Van Halen. I thought that was really well done. Thank you. I look at the last 10 years we've got in a Zlozauer book or two. Michael Christopher also had a book out that I believe was on Backbeat. There was the Brad Talinsky, Chris Gill book focused on Eddie, I think called Eruption. There's Steve Rosen's book. Okay, so there's all this Eddie perspective. Plus um, the Time Magazine or the Rolling Stone serial that I always see at the cash register at the supermarket. And so everything is from Eddie's perspective, probably because they want to cash in on the tributes and, and all that. Cause we lost them a couple of years ago, but very little of it is Dave centric. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like if I wrote six chapters on Van Halen, it would be six chapters of everything you knew already. Yeah. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to have another one of these books that's just recapping Wikipedia <laughs> entries. And I did my best with that. And I would say, you know, 80, 90% of people love it. And 10 to 20% of the people hate my guts and think like, oh, he made the story about himself. And that wasn't the goal. It wasn't to make it about me. It was to make it emphasize that to get the story of Dave, it is a headache because you have to jump through all these layers and figure out who's who and who who knows stuff and who doesn't know stuff and who just met him once in a parking lot and is telling that story the rest of their lives. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, these facts overlap or contradict. And I still don't think I fully know that much about Dave. I know album titles and I know who he toured with and who's in the band, but there's so many crew members that we don't know who they are. (laughs) Yeah. And and it's, it's also, you know, I think some of the chapters that I would think probably took a lot of effort to dig. Definitely. I think Tokyo Dave being one. And I'm thinking also Dave, the EMT, which was always a mystery to all of us, but it was, it was kind of like, it was sort of public, but sort of private. And, I, and I, I took that away as probably ones that were took a lot of digging on your part to find stuff out. Believe it or not, Linda was really easy to track down. Nice as nice can be. We occasionally text. She's a lovely, wonderful person enjoying retirement, but still has her side hustles. If you wanted to hire her to teach you EMT stuff, she'd probably do it for you if you paid the right price. Uh, Linda is wonderful, and she was on... You know, here's the weird thing. A lot of the radio show people are all in touch. 
that era of Dave people are all friendly with each other. Yeah. So, so for example, Animal, the security guard, who was on the air some of the time, talks to Brian Young and Hutch and another person I was speaking to who was handling Dave's publishing in that time, years or four years after. He's like, oh, yeah, I, I uh, just sent a holiday card to Animal. All those people talk to each other, almost like co-workers at an office yeah. at a company that enjoyed it, whereas we think of this radio show as being this disaster, this punchline that people laugh at. All of them got along, so all of them like Linda. Linda went from being his EMT teacher to kind of his assistant or one of his assistants. Dave's had these periods where he was really staffed up. And then now I get the vibe he's not staffed up at all. Yeah. It's a very skeletal crew of people attending him right now. So, you know, I got way off topic there, but Linda was easy to track down, super on the record, not restrictive, asks me anything, and we kept it positive. Yeah. And then Tokyo Dave was a nightmare <laughs> um, because I have a lot of experience with doing business in Japan and you have to get the one or two people on your side in Japan. And I know I'm generalizing with cultures here, but you have to get those one or two people to establish your credibility or you're dead in the water. Yeah, no. And, and you, and, and it's true because, you know, in my day job, I actually deal with folks in, in Japan and, and Korea and, and it took a little time for them to realize you know, once one of them went, all right, yeah. you can trust Scott. Then it was like, then it opened up that I had zero issues after that. So I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, it was very difficult um, to get the people on board with that because they also did not have a positive experience with Dave mm. in making Tokyo Story. It is as chaotic of a project as it looks like it was. And then me interviewing Konashiki, the... Hawaiian-born sumo wrestler who's one of the most famous people ever in Japan and virtually unknown here in the States, which is amazing. He, I emailed him, and he got back to me from email right away and added him as, as a Facebook friend, and he asked me right back. It was surprising that somebody so famous in some parts of the world was was just accessible, and he's like, yeah, whatever you want, brother, you know, that, mm -hmm. that kind of a thing. And he he remembered Dave. He he, he wasn't super starstruck, which which uh, amazed me. So he was easy to track down. The filmmakers related to that were not easy, and the filmmakers came from this random um, Japanese American journalist that I'd interviewed named Roland Kelts. I think I'd interviewed him uh, on a junket for Friskies. <laughs> It was Whiskers or Friskies had funded some documentary he helped make. And we kept in touch because I saw what a big fan he was of The Who. Hmm. And I think at one point I asked, hey, did you ever interview Dave? And went, no, but my friends worked with him. I'll introduce you. And that's how that happened. Wow. All because of Friskies <laughs> or Whiskers. <laughs> wow, that's messed up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cat food uh, got me to Dave. Yeah, that's craziness. Like I said, I was trying to, you know, look through and I was like, you know, what's, you know, what would be hard? What wasn't? So 
At least I got at least I got one of them right. Yeah, there were there there were other parts of this book that were really hard. Getting the people who worked with Dave in the past few years that mm. that uh, getting them to trust me was not easy. But ultimately, you know, we we became friends or friendish. Um, some of them, and uh, that you know that worked out for the better. But those are guys who know everything and are so good at just keeping things positive. Like uh, another person, Ray Luzier, mm. he knows everything, and he has never once said a negative thing about Dave publicly. Yeah, he's he's definitely somebody that's um, he's worked with a lot of people. Um, oh yeah, and uh, yeah, he. He's always has very positive stuff to say. I think I'm trying to remember. I think I might have had Ray on the show too at one point for something he was working on for probably the KXM yes. album. Yes, that's exactly what it was. It was for KXM. Yep. Yeah, he, he's one of those people where you would, if you knew him through, you know, being a, a dad around town, he'd have all the time in the world for you. And if he's got a prog side project or a drum instruction video, all the time in the world. And you're like, I'd like to talk to Ray about corn. He's busy. <laughs> I'd like to talk to Ray about David Lee Roth. He's busy. <laughs> and they go, but I want to talk to, to Ray about his new line of drum heads. Yeah, man, what do you need? Like 40 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's uh, he doesn't talk that much about Corn or Dave, but everyone thinks he's the nicest. And my limited interactions with him, he was the nicest. Yeah, yeah. So you you know seem to intimate, at least from what I'm hearing, that maybe you'll delve into another book or something about Dave history. I would love to, rather than starting from scratch, I would love to, in a couple of years, do an expanded edition hmm. where I correct the things that I might have gotten wrong or things that proved themselves wrong and things from the past couple of years and update the retirement status. And, you know, since putting out the book, I'm not exaggerating when I say 10 to 15 people have come out of the woodwork and gone, oh, you should have interviewed me. I know everything. They go, What? You know, this one publicist who I, I deal with all the time, this happened about two weeks ago. He'll be like, hey, um, can we send you a new kit of this monster energy thing? And I go, yeah, sure. He saw my book two weeks ago and goes, hey, you know I, I represented Dave on Ink the Original, right? I go, no. We never talked about music once. I didn't know you worked for Dave. <laughs> so I don't think that story has ever been told and another person emerged who's a publicist, but not in the music space, who knows everything. And he told me about the Van Halens having everybody under non-disclosures since the 90s, and I didn't know that. And there's a person who, after I turned my manuscript in, turned out to have been Dave's publisher for 12 years, and he got in touch. <laughs> so I think I have stuff that I could add. I, mm. I wouldn't want to do 90,000 more words, but if we could add, you know, another 30,000, 40,000 words and then update some of the stuff that's there, mm. I'd love to do that in a couple of years. Yeah, I think that would actually be pretty cool. I know that um, going back to Van Halen of 50 with Martin is, you know, Martin's done that with a couple of his things, too. He just did it recently with... Uh, with his Black Sabbath books, he added a whole bunch of new information and things he didn't have in there. And, and I went out and dutifully bought the updates and they totally. were great, you know, so totally. Yeah. I, so, you know, I'll keep my mind on that. There's 
I might <laughs> write an ebook about the experience of writing this book because a lot of stuff <laughs> happened to me uh, while doing this. There's a chance of that. Mm. And then I have other book ideas, but uh, I, I pretty much prefer the podcasting yep. for the artistic expression, how fast you can get it out, how it's your voice literally. Yeah. You could you could say more in three sentences of a podcast than you can in forty pages of a book. Sure. People yeah. people know you and I like that that interaction. So that's that's uh, where we're at right now. Like I said, it would be good if, if it was an expanded one. I would probably go out and buy it. It's uh We'll, we'll keep it. We'll keep it cheap. If so, it, it is not a cash grab. It's just uh, preserving the legacy. Yeah. So you know, I'll keep you posted as that's happening. So um, you know, obviously the the version that I that I have is the PDF promo version. But uh, so one thing I until my actual copy rolls in, wasn't able to actually see any of the pictures. You want to talk a little bit about the pictures? The pictures were taken by Kevin Baldus from the band Lit, mm. who photographed the last Van Halen show in 2015. Uh, one or two of the David Lee Roth solo shows opening for Kiss. And there's also a photo of him with Dave uh, from the early 2000s. And there's that. And then a couple things that fans sent me. Hmm. I think I was contractually obligated to deliver 15 photos. I gave him 18. It was something like that. I wanted to include his helicopter pilot's license, his EMT license, but my publisher shot me down on that. They said, uh, where's the paper trail saying you can do this? And I said, well, these are government records. They're public. And they said, but where's the permission? Well, here's my request email. No, where's the permission? It's public record. They fought me. So that's why you don't see his helicopter's license. Mm, yeah, because it's interesting on the, like the Amazon listing for the book. A lot of times they'll say like, you know, pictures or whatever and there's like nothing in there i'm like i'm pretty sure there's pictures in this thing i'm pretty sure there is and i had to i had to look around and i think it might have been backbeat that mentioned it or something but uh, yeah. just knowing that a lot of people myself included buy stuff off of amazon mostly for books i just wanted to make sure that we did cover the fact that there is pictures in the book and and uh just kind of have you go through them a little bit just so that and if anyone had a question like i did they know. I'll I'll manually if you don't get the book, I'll manually send you the photos as a Google Drive. Like, how's that? Um, you know, just like <laughs> vinyl and CDs, I'm like I'm like a physical media whore. I'm old school, and sure. So I love having the book in my hand. So yeah, it's I just like I said, just like for me, where I, I didn't, I was like, is there? Isn't there? Um, and it wasn't really clear on the listing. I wanted to make sure that people listening, if they had the same question. They would they'd have their their question answered. So. And have yes, it answered sir. by you. So yeah. <laughs> thanks, Scott. You know, it's part of the the whole I, the whole thing, right? With the promotion. That's why I didn't even want to down with you until I actually did read the book as well. Because there is, you know, there's. I know you probably see it too on podcast, or people are like talking, and it's clear they didn't read the book. They didn't listen to the <laughs> album. You, you hear it on FM radio every day with DJs. It's like you didn't read or listen to any of this, and I feel like that's just that's like a slight. On, on you writing a book if, if the person that's talking to you about it hasn't even taken the time to, to go in and read it. Now, granted, they may not be insane like me and I'm, you know, reading 1,200 <laughs> words a minute, but still, it's like you, you kind of owe it to actually put the work in. Yeah, that's why we know a little bit, a little bit of, a, of a delay in, in having you on, but, uh, you know, altogether, I think just really good book. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. It means so much 
so much coming from you. Really appreciate your time. Really appreciate that you did your homework and asked original questions. And, you know, keep in touch. Uh, happy to tape again with you in the future when there's more or if I can introduce you to folks. Happy to do so, Scott. Sure. Yeah, no problem. And, you know, if you're like even go, hey, you know, I want to have that jerk on the DLR cast. Hit me up. <laughs> I know, you know, back in the old days, we were uh, – we had a, a thing called the Cast Iron Ring, and they were a whole bunch of, of our shows all together. Um, you know, we'd pop on each other's shows all the time and stuff, and it was it was pretty dynamic and fun. And, and uh, you know, you know I, I really haven't done much of that in the last couple of years. But, uh, you know, again, I, I'm one of those longtime VH fans. Um, I can remember picking up Van Halen 1 and nobody else around had the album and, and I was just blown away and I can remember just taking my uh, my Rickenbacker amp and hooking it up to the <laughs> stereo and pointing it out the window and played Eruption like is anybody going to ask questions and uh, it's I, I've been you know nuts for Van Halen ever since so it's uh, it's like I said right at the beginning, it's great to actually be able to to talk some VH on the show and yeah. and uh, you probably notice even like on Twitter that you know usually if it's a VH thing, I comment on it, I repost it. Uh, you know, I'm yeah. still it's still one of these bands that means just a crap load to me. Same here. That's why I wrote it, and that's why it's a pleasure to speak with you. And hey, you know, thank you for keeping on the right side of history, and <laughs> thank you for preserving music. Yeah, we're trying. All right, Darren. It's awesome. Awesome to talk to you. Awesome to talk to a fellow East Coaster as well. That's always great. And, uh, you know, I'll be looking out for whatever else you do. Hopefully an update to this book. And, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely keep in touch. Likewise, likewise. Thanks for having me. Speak to you soon, man. Have All a right. great evening. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye now. Thank you. Have a good night. All right, here you go. My chat with Darren all about... Uh, Diamond Dave and uh, that crazy world he lived in. And just as a reminder, the book is called The DLR Book, How David Lee Roth Changed the World. It's uh, published on Backbeat Books. And as I mentioned before, way early on, it is available up at Amazon. It's also available at the Van Halen Store. So uh, vanhalenstore.com. And you can pick up Darren's book. You can also pick up pretty much any of the other books he mentioned in the interview. They're all available up there on the Van Halen store as well. And there's also the Kindle version available on Amazon as well. So hopefully this piques your interest and you want to dig into the world of Diamond Dave. So go get your very own copy. So uh, we'll wrap it up for this week. Like I said, Richie, great to have you back in the studio kicking off 2024 and i think at this point we may have done an episode every week so far which is pretty bizarre but uh i don't know see whether we keep that trend up or not but anyways for this week that's it there ain't no more stick a fork in it this puppy is done so for myself and richie have yourselves a great meta week and until we talk to you again next time as always remember focus on metal everything else is insignificant.
You're still here? It's over. Go home.